with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Eric Allen, for the next hour. My guest this morning is Sheldon Clare. <clears throat> Good morning, Eric. Morning, Sheldon. Sheldon has a number of uh, uh, different attributes behind his name, but we're not going to go into them all this morning. We're going to get into the political end of it, and I want to start off with, uh, uh, you know, the fact that we may be going into a recession. It looks like we are in a recession, and uh, Sheldon's going to give us kind of an overview of what that looks like and what it might look like going forward, and uh, if what, if anything, there is we can do about it. So take a shot at that. Well, sure. I, I think the biggest problem we're facing, Eric, is that we have a national debt that's getting close to a trillion and a half dollars. It's gone, gone up a great deal in the last few years, and that this is really a number that is insurmountable. It's probably not able to be paid off. And it is the biggest drain on all of our expenditures federally. We're, we're spending more money servicing this debt than almost anything else we do. And this means that our, that of our tax dollars, a significant percentage of what everybody pays every year in their income tax and every other tax is going to pay the national debt. And what that means for uh, our, our economy is that we are heading into a, a, a situation where Government intervention is not going to be the way out because government intervention is what's getting us into this problem. I mean, John Maynard Keynes, one of the old, the old British uh, uh, economists, who was basically a left-wing economist, but it was uh, uh, Stephen Harper quite liked him and, and followed a lot of his stuff. He, Steve, uh, John Maynard Keynes always argued that government intervention was something that you, you did if it was necessary, but you always worked to pay down the debt when you had good times. And everyone likes the spend money part, but they don't like to pay it back. And we're probably heading into something worse than a recession because of decisions made by successive governments going back to to the Pearson-Trudeau area, era of the 1960s and maybe even before. So I'm a little concerned as to what the end of October is going to look like. That's traditionally the month where things start to reveal themselves. We'll see what the stock markets are doing, and I'm I'm very concerned. We don't really seem to have a lot of bright solutions out there to deal with this big problem, and I am I'm, I'm worried. I'm I'm concerned about what that's going to mean for people's pensions, people's uh, savings, and so on. We've historically seen a, a number of failures of economies back in the 20th century, the, the German examples in the 1920s stand, and then of course we have more recent examples, Venezuela and, and, and others, that indicate the uh, the dire nature of, a, of an economy that is not in balance. Okay, now this is not a situation that's restricted to Canada. I understand there's a huge uh, inflation and uh, possible recession problem in the United Kingdom certainly is in the United States yes so we're looking at a world oh it's absolutely going to be a worldwide situation uh, debt levels are very high 
the last couple of years with all of this uh, pandemic stuff going on that uh, resulted in significant economic damage to tourism sectors in particular is really hurting economies all over the place. Now there's now that things seem to have settled down at least somewhat and restrictions are are, are fading away. I mean, I was reading Air Canada's uh, announcement that uh, they were glad to see the mask and, and the mandates being lifted because there was no scientific basis for them, and that's right in their press release on it. And I was I was glad to see that there was finally some common sense coming to to bear on this that reflects reality rather than marketing. And I, I I'm hoping that a resurgent tourist industry is going to help, but I don't think it's going to be enough. No, I wouldn't think so either. I, I say this, I got this Macquarie, Macquarie Group, Australian-based global financial service provider, estimates Canada will face approximately 3% contraction in gross domestic product and a 5% rise in unemployment rate during the predicted recession. Um, Quite likely. And, and I mean, we're, look, we're looking at a, at a country in which we are a, a natural resource extraction company, and, and that activity has been stymied at every level uh, due to federal pro- pro- policy for the most part and some provincial policies, largely over climate change alarmism, which is really uh, d- being quite destructive to this country, which has more opportunity to provide uh, our, our, the strength of our boreal forest in, in producing <laughs> real carbon credits rather than fake ones where you pay money to the government to do for them to waste its... Uh, it's a big, a big problem. I'm not sure any government right now could walk in and solve this. No, and that was going to be my next question. Do you think that uh, anybody's actually driving the car or driving the bus, or are we just hell bent for uh, for the finish line and nobody knows who's in the race? Well, it's again, it's the, the it's, it's not even the elephant in the room. It's more like the herd of elephants in the Volkswagen is this great national debt. It's it's just overarching everything. No one wants to talk about it. No one's looking at it. Everyone talks about the annual deficit when, when the government's budget deficit spending, which effectively adds to the national debt. And they think they, they can just throw money and make people happy by thinking they're getting money. But our money is not going to be worth very much very soon. And when that happens, we're going to have a big problem that is not going to be easy to solve without some very hard decisions that are going to affect a lot of people's savings and a lot of money that is owed. Well, I was saying here, inflation rate reached 7% uh, in August. I think it's a bit higher than that, really. It was 8.1 in June, and that's that's the, the st- statistics they're putting out there. And, well, you know, that little package that they use, yeah, which probably doesn't include the uh, Two hundred and fifty dollars or three hundred dollars to buy a new key for your car. Well, I I uh, picked up some groceries the other day, and I I think I spent two hundred dollars, and I walked out with three little bags. <laughs> and I, I I looked at this and I went, "This is crazy. What is going on here?" Because it's it's clear to me that uh, has has uh, someone of moderate means, my purchasing power has contracted considerably in the last ten years. Like it's really gone down a lot, and it's r- dropped dramatically in the last three. So if my purchasing power has gone down, and I'm looking at, at, at trying to make cuts and, and, and sort things out, I can only imagine what everybody else is going through 
particularly in the median range of incomes right now, where staples have gone up a great deal. You know, like go, dry up a bag of potatoes you would buy six months ago was probably $22. That same sack of potatoes now, like a big sack of potatoes, is getting close to 70 Yeah, That's not a that's not 8% inflation. No, I use my own little uh, gauge for uh, inflation. It's a, a loaf of bread bought in a local grocery store here. It, maybe seven, eight years ago, it used to be 87 cents, and now it's about $2.87. It's basically the same loaf. Yep, sitting in the same place, got there the same way, and uh, tripled, yep. tripled in in cost. And, so. and and that's a big problem because people are paying more and getting less. Yep. So and then of course the housing market and uh, the housing market drives the economy. Yes. But people in the median and a little bit higher incomes uh, can't afford to buy a house. I don't think anybody can buy, afford to buy a house anymore. I, I mean, I've got a buddy we were talking about rental issues, about people who are renting and, and how they're at the, at the mercy of the market. Now, they have a fair bit of protection, of course. Like, you know, there's limited uh, amounts of increases that landlords can put on, on rent. I think it's 3% is the, is the, the max that you can do in a, in a year. Uh, however, landlords' costs have gone up considerably. The renters' costs have gone up considerably. There's no additional means to pay. So everybody is really behind the eight ball, so to speak, and not able to make ends meet. And this is a situation that's going to get worse and worse and worse before it gets any better. What's the answer? I really don't know. I, I see that we're going to be going through some very hard times, and we're going to have to see some strong people emerge from those hard times. Well, yeah, and especially in the political field, we need somebody that knows what they're doing and, and how to get a job done. The uh, generation coming through now, one that's passed through just a little while ago and the ones that are coming through, they haven't seen hard times. Uh, you probably haven't seen it the way I did, being... Well, I'm, just I'm, a tail, guy, I'm just the tail end guy. of the boom, so, you yeah. know, <laughs> I, I, I got all the good stuff, and yet I didn't have to watch everybody pick up the bricks from the from the floor of the broken buildings. Yeah, I remember I had an old friend said if things ever got bad the way they were before, he would just, if his old culvert was still there behind uh, W.H. Malkin's warehouse, he'd just get a sleeping bag and crawl into the culvert, and he was... Back where he was before, so probably have uh, lots of company. But people don't know where culverts are; they don't know who Malkins is. And <laughs> yeah, it's, their world has changed. Yeah, so it, it's it's bad, yeah. and I I I really am concerned as to what's going on. But you're right; there's a, a, a lack of understanding of just what hard times means. I mean, people talk about recycling. Uh, it, in, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, people lived recycling. That was what they did. That was how they lived. This is, yeah. this is, you didn't have to tell somebody to save scraps of metal or rubber or anything else. They just did it. Had their own gardens, grew their own food. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I was pulling potatoes out of my garden last night. I'm looking at them and I go, no, I've got a little bit, a bit of, of scabbiness on the spuds and I got to do some crop rotation in my backyard and, and probably add a bit of acid to the soil to take the bacteria out that causes it. But I, I, I think that that's a valuable thing to do is for people to be looking after their own, uh, resources to some extent. And, and we have the ability to do that, even living in, you know the the center of the province, and we have access to land and and that type of thing. But they they don't have the same opportunities down in the bigger cities. No, 
and we are very fortunate here even has a has a smaller city in in the fact that we have a lot of space we have a lot of resources the big issue we have here that is difficult to deal with year round is winter and I, I often hear people say, well, you know, we'll just live off the land and we're going to do this and this. Well, I, I go, okay, winter. Tell me how that works for six months of the year. Just to, There's six months of the year that don't fit your little manual about how to live off the land. So just explain that to me in, in graphic detail. And, and people need to get back to basic skills, canning and uh, drying uh, foods and, and all of that and preserving Things that were taken for granted, uh, you know, 150 years ago. That these are skills that have become lost because of the convenience of the local uh, shopping center. Yeah, I was reading a book uh, about people who lived down in the Mud River back, you know, quite a number of years ago. It was all farming and that, and canning was a big part of how they got through the winter. Yep. And uh, one paragraph there was that somebody had left the uh, root house door open, and they had 800 quarts of canyons to, for, to get them through the winter all frozen cracked a major major problem you know? that's huge and but that's how people got through the winter and uh you could still do it but we don't i mean if we had a run on canning products it'd be all be on tomorrow oh yeah that's for sure yeah i, I know I, I remember growing up and and you know you do you, you know my parents and my dad and mom and everything because they, they were friends growing up uh, canning was a big annual thing, making the uh, preserves, sometimes uh, making a bit of wine. Mum would, mom would put, put a put a crock pot together. Sometimes that went so well, and other times it didn't. But the, the the canning was a huge thing, and getting the pressure cooker, cleaning all the jars, making sure everything was rinsed, making sure when you had those uh, uh, seals for the jars or wax, if you didn't have have a, a proper seal making jams and jellies and everything else. And, and these are skills that are still out there, but not as many people are engaging in them as they used to. And I think that's something that people are going to find themselves getting back to in a big way, especially as things start to become tough, and they are going to become tough. Well, we're certainly going to have to see about that. But, you know, this uh, we get to talk about it from time to time in the supply chain, and something goes wrong with the supply chain. Uh, that was a, a well. Well, we saw that in 2020. You know, yeah. you walked into the grocery stores; there, shelf after shelf after shelf was empty, and people were walking around with vacant stares on their faces, realizing that, gee whiz, maybe the government and and the supply chains aren't going to look after us, and we may have to do our do things ourselves. And people, of course, were panic buying too. There was a fair bit of hoarding going on, which is understandable, but does accelerate and make the problem much worse. I mean, I still know people who've got hundreds of packages of toilet paper stuffed away in their basements, and you know they have enough toilet paper to to, to deal with the, the world for a thousand years. And maybe we should have just got a stick and a sponge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, the old Roman method. So that's basically where we are, and, and of course, if that supply chain breaks, and it's so long, I mean, we've got stuff coming from China. Most of our vegetables in the wintertime come from down in California, or I guess eastern Canada comes out of Florida or whatever. But And most of our canned goods uh, comes out of, for this area, comes out of uh, Ontario, some in Quebec, I think. And uh, so that we don't have the, even the railways don't have the facilities, they don't have the rail cars or anything to handle that kind of stuff uh, that they had years ago. 
like no. refrigerated cars and that type of thing. Meat comes out of Edmonton, and so long as the roads open and the trucks are running, we can uh, get away with this. But if it all happens at once, look out. We're going to go for a break now, and we'll be back uh, shortly. Hi, this is The Wolfman. Few entertainment genres have captured our imagination and been as successful as the good old-fashioned musical. From their vaudevillian roots to today's blockbusters, musicals have provided generations with a stream of memorable productions, show-stopping performances, and larger-than-life personalities. Join me for a unique adventure as we trip the light fantastic across more than a century of musical theater, from Broadway to the West End and all points in between. On with the show, Sunday afternoons at 2, only on Boomer Radio 93. If you have dietary restrictions due to diabetes, gluten sensitivity, or stroke, or are on a keto diet, listen carefully. Deb's Cafe has blueberry pie, coconut cream pie, butter tarts, butter pecan cookies, strawberry cheesecake, brownies, carrot cake, cinnamon rolls, and many more items which are suitable for your special dietary needs and which our customers assure us are delicious. Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery, next to Pharmasafe at 7th and Quebec. Children are back to school and the weather is turning cooler. Time to make your appointment at Tops and Bottoms. Find your well-fitting, supportive and beautiful underwear in our store at 2nd and Victoria. We are here to help make your shopping experience a victory. Schedule a fitting appointment with your service expert online at topsandbottoms.ca or call 250-614-1553. Tops and Bottoms, continued support for the women of Prince George. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, fog patches dissipating late this morning, a high of 22. Tonight clear, fog patches developing after midnight, a low of 6. Mainly sunny on Tuesday, increasing cloudiness early afternoon, and a high of 20. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and we're just going to finish off this recession thing that... uh that we're supposedly heading into, and and some people are thinking that it's not going to be that bad, maybe a, a year or so. It says here, this article I was reading said, it's likely to be potentially 6, 9, 12 months before we start to see the bank cutting rates again. Um, that's because they want to be certain that they brought inflation under control. So, But I think it's probably more than just an inflation problem. I mean... People have to have meaningful jobs and have to be able to earn money to buy things. And, and that's what old Henry Ford said when he gave all his workers a raise way back in the 1920s. He got a lot of static from other big corporations. You have so, to be able to buy what yeah. you're making. Yeah. Like, you can't buy that car from yeah. the Ford Motor Company. He's you're working there. You're, you're done. Yeah. And yeah. He, he, he got that. And, and I, I think we're at the a point now where we're not making enough stuff here. We're packaging up and shipping it away, and we're being stymied in our ability to uh, to pack up and ship some stuff away. And we're also selling our natural resources to other countries, which I think is very, very foolish. Well, there's, there's any number of things that we could do if we had, uh, like I read somewhere quite a while ago that the amount of money by that uh, Canadian businessmen have just sitting in banks and not investing is astronomical, like $300 billion or something. And uh, Americans will invest. You know, they get out there and invest their money. And I don't know about other countries, but Canadians. We're savers. Yeah, we kind of let somebody else take the risk and then duplicate it. (laughs) Well, and I I mean, I think the 1930s were a very big thing for Canadians. They were everywhere, of course. 
but uh, uh, the the prairies in Canada suffered particularly harshly. The farms and everything that were all taken by the banks, and they're. And, and despite the fact that we have a very solid banking system in which deposits are guaranteed uh, to up to a set amount, uh, unlike many of the American banks, which has a the, which we saw that crisis go on in the you know about fifteen years or so ago, the housing crisis down there related to banking. Well, we're, we've got a few more protections than the Americans have. However, we also have a fair bit of caution. Uh, and risk. We're the we're the most heavily insured people in the world. I mean, Canadians buy insurance that they really probably don't need, and insurance companies bank on that. They're, that's what insure how insurance works. Yeah. You know, when, when you're when you're young, the insurance company bets you're you're going to live, and you're betting you're going to die. And when you're old, you're betting you're going to you're going to live, and the insurance company's betting you're going to die. And <laughs> insurance win. companies always right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I think I'm going to jump now from uh, the recession, uh, and I, I guess we, if it comes in as bad as we seem to think it might be, I can see why they would call it a depression. Well, <laughs> we'll the depre- they, def- they, they float the definition of depression out there any, every now and then, and, but I think if I recall, one of the definitions I heard was four consecutive downturns in the economy, or, or four recessionary periods equals a depression. However, when you get those four periods, they try to shift the definition so they don't use the D word. Because, yeah. you know, there's an old joke, and you know it well, I'm, I'm sure, Eric, it's, uh, what's the difference between a recession and a depression? Well, a recession is when you're out of work, and a depression is when I'm out of work. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we got that. Now I want to go to uh, just Canadian politics in general. Just a, a quick review of the last the 2021 election. I think you know we got some problems here in Canada with uh, <laughs> with political parties and and uh, anyway. So we got. I'll just give you a quick number. The last election, Bloc Quebec had thirty two seats, and Conservatives one hundred nineteen, Green Party two, Liberals one hundred sixty, and New Democrats twenty five. So the Liberals with one hundred sixty seats couldn't form a government, and so they went to the New Democratic Party and. Uh, and they supported them, and so they're still still in power today. Yeah, they cut a deal. Yeah, they cut a deal of some sort. It, it's a traditional deal for the NDP. They did the same thing when they were the CCF, and they've done it all the time because they they recognized or accepted that they're not going to be government. They recognize there's only two parties in a parliamentary system, the in-party and the out-party. So they make their deals as much as they can with the in-party to prop it up if it's a minority, and then yeah. they get their agenda passed which is a huge success for them. So they're playing a clever game, and I think that is going to resonate well with their voters. The Liberals, on the other hand, don't like this very much, and the Conservatives, of course, don't like it very much. Uh, so we're going to have to see what happens here. I mean, the Conservatives are polling extremely well right now after Pierre Polyev won the leadership with such a resounding endorsement of the Conservative Party. So they're, they're, they're going up. The interesting thing was that the popular vote, of course, the Conservatives had more votes than uh, than the uh, Liberals, significant amount more. I just forget what it was, but it was... Uh, oh, yeah. It was up there. A couple hundred thousand, anyway. Well, and the, prob- the problem is, when you have a parliamentary system based on ridings, if you get 100% in some ridings, yeah, your popular vote's going to be great, yeah. but you're only going to be representing this one little tiny spot in, in a very large country. So there's a... I think we've tried to come to a balance in this country about how we do that, and it's 
it's such that nobody's ever happy, which means it's probably the best way to go. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I'm just sort of, what I'm trying to get to sort of is, <clears throat> you know, if you move these numbers around a bit, maybe uh, uh, take a few away from the uh, NDP, give a few more to the Green, uh, we could conceivably have a situation where you might have to go to the Bloc Quebec to form the government. Well, and that would be the the Mulroney Lucien Bouchard formula, because in order for the Conservatives to have a majority, the Liberals have to do badly in Quebec, and for the Liberals to do badly in Quebec, the NDP needs to do well, and the Conservatives need to pick up the, some down the middle seats. The Bloc Quebecois effectively was a means of destroying support for the Conservatives, and yet they moved more to the left. They were sort of a more left branch of the Conservatives. They became very nationalist, and they adopted policies which were effectively more left of centre than right of centre. I don't want to say nationalist and socialist at the same time, but in effect, they have their provincialist sort of outlook on the world and yet adopt more socialist policies in the Bloc. So they've created a situation where the Bloc Quebecois can can really determine who is going to be government by the way they run their campaigns and how, how well they do. However, their support's been fading. Has support for separatism has faded in Quebec. So yeah. that's, a, that's a big change. And that means there's an opportunity there for the Conservatives to pick up some seats. Yeah, they haven't done that for a while. I think uh, Harper was the only government that actually formed a majority without very much support from Quebec. I think he only had five seats or something, and that's and, sort and of an anomaly. Many, and he didn't get many from Toronto either. He sort of he managed to corral Toronto with all those seats around it, yeah. and and I think that was an extremely interesting play. I, I watched that fairly carefully, and I I thought to myself, wow, I've just seen Toronto isolated from Troc, the rest of Canada. And that doesn't happen very often because no. Toronto basically sees itself as Canada. Yeah. And it, I, I thought it was an interesting play by Harper, but it wasn't sustainable. No. It, it, and it, it, was a, it was probably in some ways a, a, a statistical or mathematical fluke. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would say. Just the things come together back east and uh, we're going to go for a break. Okay, we're going to go for a break now. What should you do if you suspect the abuse of an elder? If you believe someone you know might be the victim of elder abuse, turn your concerns over to the professionals and let them investigate. Do not confront a suspected abuser yourself. Let the professionals determine if abuse is occurring. The Prince George Council of Seniors has a list of numbers you can call and websites you can visit for more information. Pick up the list at the Seniors Resource Centre, the corner of 7th and Victoria, or call 250-564-9100. You asked and Two Rivers Gallery is pleased to deliver. Creative Space Sundays are back every week at Two Rivers Gallery. From pipe cleaner sculptures to styrofoam prints, be sure to drop in every Sunday for an artful afternoon and let your creativity soar with a new activity each week. Free for members with no registration necessary. Creative Space Sundays from 1 to 4 every Sunday at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. The North Central Seniors Association has regular activities in the basement of the College Heights Baptist Church, featuring yoga, photo club, and cards on Mondays, 
Tai Chi and Pool on Wednesdays, they also have monthly breakfast club meetings at Delano's and a weekly coffee social at Tim Hortons, not to mention special events each Saturday. It's a great way to hang out with friends old and new. Full details are available on their website, ncsapg.bravehost.com. The North Central Seniors Association, 5401 Moriarty Crescent. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is teaming up with Engage Sport North to present Indigenous Communities Active for Life Thursday. This full-day workshop will help community leaders to deliver programs that promote the holistic development of participants. Registration and full details are available through the events page at ispark.ca. Indigenous Communities Active for Life from iSpark and Engage Sport North Thursday at the Charles Jago Northern Sports Centre. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. We have Peter Ewart online. Peter's at uh, 100 Mile this morning on his way to Vancouver, but uh, he's got a few things he wants to get into. Peter, uh, Sheldon's going to stay with us till the end of the uh, program, but before I get you on lobbying, which will be our next, I just want to finish off what I was working on, which is the uh, Government of Canada. So, Sheldon, just quick overview of, of your sense of where the next federal election is going to go. Like, are we going to have an early election? NDP going to quit supporting the uh, Liberals? Uh, Trudeau maybe wants to run sooner rather than later. And roughly speaking, do you see more of the same, or are we going to get some changes? Well, we had an election a year ago. And there's usually not a lot of taste for having rapid Italian-style parliaments. Although Italy's changed quite a bit recently, (laughs) which might make things more interesting there. Uh, I'm a historian, Eric, and historians are are bad enough at predicting the past, so predicting the future is always a, a sketchy thing to try to get into. I mean, I have some hopes and dreams about what might happen, and I'd, I'd probably welcome an election right now, but I think what's, it, what will happen goes back to what we were talking about earlier and what's going to go on with the economy, and is there going to be a major structural shift? I think that the Liberals historically have been very lucky about when they were out of office, and... Trudeau right now is in a time where it's not a good time to be in office because there are a lot of things going on that aren't going so well. And he's wearing it. And the Liberals are wearing it, as, as they should. They bear a lot of responsibility for this. It's, it remains to be seen about how the, the uh, CPC, the most logical uh, party to to replace the Liberals in an election is going to perform. Pierre Polyev is, is very much working his image. He seems to be uh, coming over very well with Canadians. Polls are up for the Conservatives. I am thinking, though, that the NDP is concerned about being tied too deeply to the uh, the uh, the Liberal weight as it gets dragged down. They don't want to go down with the ship. I, the other factor that's out there that did affect a number of conservative seats, of course, was Maxime Bernier's bunch and the the uh, his his uh, PPC. I think those guys are actually going to be very badly hurt by Pierre Polyev's populist sort of style. I think a lot of people who were vote conservative voters will look back and say, "Okay, well, we've got." this guy here, and he looks like he's going to work for us. He's far more popular than Maxime Bernier ever was or ever will be. Uh, Maxime Bernier seems to have been more driven by 
a, a snit than anything else that has lasted for far too long. And it's quite likely that although it's quite likely that a lot of things he's adapted as, adopted as policy in that party are going to be seeing a resurgence in the Conservatives and thus attract some of those voters to support Conservatives with the goal of getting rid of the Liberals. Yeah, I can see that. The last election, uh, Brindy got 840,000 votes, which is significant. Mm-hmm. And uh, Conservatives certainly could have used those in some writings. It would have made a difference. <laughs> it would have made in, a difference. In, I think, about 17 writings. And I think the NDP uh, really have to watch this close and how closely they're affiliated with the Liberals, especially if things get worse and it looks like they're going to. And they may want to walk away from it, but whether they'll do better on a snappy election or not, well, I don't know. It's 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 sketchy. I I mean, they've got to be thinking about it. But it, and it's one of the great advantages of our parliamentary system that we we can have elections at any time. The government can assess. The, the situation, they can go to the people for a mandate, uh, or whatever that looks like in a, in a situation where, you, where you're hated by most of the people, no matter who you are. <laughs> and I, I, I think that that's a neat thing. It, it, it was very confusing to me when they, uh, the, I think it was the Conservatives of Harper brought in fixed election dates. And it's, it's just another thing that we get attracted to the American system in many respects. And we try to imitate it, but it doesn't work very well because our style of government is quite a bit different. Yeah, we are a constitutional yeah. monarchy with a parliamentary system. We're not a republic. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've gone down that road as far as we can go today. Peter, you want to get in on that lobbying and give us what you got on that, and then we'll see if we can have a intelligent conversation on it? Okay, for sure, Eric. Uh, I have some notes here that I'm just going to go through uh, on the whole issue of lobbying, uh, something that uh, goes on a lot that doesn't necessarily get the attention that it uh, that it should. But according to Wikipedia and politics, lobbying is the act of lawfully attempting to influence the action, policies, or decisions of government officials. And it's carried out by corporations, individuals in the private sector, unions, nonprofit groups, and others. Professional lobbyists are people who, whose business is trying to influence the legislation or regulation or government decisions or policies on behalf of an organization or corporation who hires them. Uh, as some observers put it, lobbyists are hired guns. Now, there's many critiques of the practice of lobbying, especially that it undermines the democratic process. Politicians, when elected, are supposed to represent the common good, not narrow private interests. Yet by its very nature, lobbying poses a problem. Uh, I, I was reading about one anonymous lobbyist who cynically put it, quote, I know what my client wants. No one knows what the common good is. Now, the problem is compounded by what is called the revolving door of employment. This is when MLAs and MPs and other government officials lose an election or resign their posts and after a period of time, to uh, get hired at a big salary by a lobbying firm or corporate interest. And these ex-politicians and ex-government officials then use their connections and experience to lobby and influence the existing government. And as uh, some might describe it, they cash in on their government experience. This kind of influence can be very powerful to the point that some observers claim that lobbyists 
sometimes actually write up proposed legislation that favors their clients and get the elected officials to simply rubber stamp it. A big challenge with lobbying is that it further removes citizens from the political process, a process that already leaves the voters out in the cold and isolated from governmental decision-making. Instead, lobbying is carried on behind closed doors where the decisions are made by politicians, lobbyists, often on behalf of big corporate interests, and spin doctors. And, that, and one thing I'd like to say is that there's all kinds of lobbyists, and this is not a, a critique of individual lobbyists in that way, right? You know, like the, that's a, lobbying is a system that is it's part of the system. You know, so it's uh, this isn't a critique of, of everyone involved in it because there are all all kinds of people involved in it. Well, that's, that's... in any case, in that regard, lobbying is part of a larger problem of what is called the democratic deficit in in the current representational system, where there are not effective mechanisms for the citizenry to participate in decision making. Someone was going to say something. Yeah, uh, uh, Sheldon was trying to get in there, but just before he gets there, uh, Peter, uh, have you pretty well got that covered there for us? I think we may be going to a break here. Okay, yeah, I still have some more to say, but sure. We're going to go to a break, and then, uh, uh, well, we'll go to the break. The Prince George Council of Seniors present In Case of Emergency, Laugh, October 22nd at Vanier Hall, featuring America's Got Talent semifinalist Greg Morton and TEDx talk speaker Maureen Langan. Tickets are just $50, available at ticketsnorth.ca and CN Center. Net proceeds benefit the seniors in our community. In Case of Emergency, Laugh, Saturday, October 22nd at 2 and 7 in Vanier Hall. Sponsored by Prince George Ford and presented by your Prince George Council of Seniors. Children spend a large portion of their day at school. Making healthy food choices for school is important because school lunches and snacks provide children with the energy and nutrients they need throughout the day and are a major source of essential vitamins and minerals they need to grow and develop. Health Canada suggests saving time in school lunch preparations by planning the weekend before, stock up on healthy on-the-go snacks, and think about making dinners which can be used as lunch leftovers. The Elder Citizens Recreation Association is hosting a craft fair and bake sale Saturday, October 22nd. There'll be a great selection of items to choose from to get an early start on your Christmas shopping and be sure to pick up some delicious home baking for the whole house to enjoy. For more information, call the ECRA office or stop by to talk to the manager. That's a craft fair and bake sale Saturday, October 22nd from 9 to 4 at the ECRA on 10th between Vancouver and Winnipeg. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, fog patches dissipating late this morning, a high of 22. Tonight clear, fog patches developing after midnight, a low of 6. Mainly sunny on Tuesday, increasing cloudiness early afternoon, and a high of 20. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about lobbyists in the provincial government in... uh uh, BC here, and I, I just want to make a few comments. I never paid much attention to lobbying, but I was looking for information one day, and I come across this <clears throat> article said, Peak Renewables Limited Mosahota Consultant <laughs> Lobbyist. And I'm thinking, well, just a minute now. No. Peak and these guys are, are established business people, well known in the community and throughout the province, and Mosahota is a uh, XNDP uh, 
member of parliament or whatever, uh, or MLA. And um, what the hell is he doing lobbying for this company? And anyway, I kind of looked into it or something. And I was quite surprised how they kind of shift when the government shifts. And and they come from being, like Peter said earlier, an MLA, and now they become a lobbyist or something. So... And the other one that just came to mind a little while ago is that with all the changes in the contributions to political parties, there's a kind of a shift towards instead of making a contribution to a political party, you just hire a lobbyist to look after your interests. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give Sheldon a chance to say a few words on this. Go ahead, Sheldon. Oh, thanks, Eric. And, and, and thanks, Peter. I, I do have a little bit of experience with lobbyists and lobbying, having been the head of a, a, a national organization engaged in lobbying in a vigorous way. And I I think there are a couple of issues that I, I, I share some concerns with Peter about. One of, the, one of them is that government tends to create lobby organizations to lobby itself and then pays money to those groups in order to promote a particular agenda, which it can then leap on. I've seen this over and over again in, in, in a few issues. However, lobby organizations that are member-driven do give people an opportunity to participate in the democratic process that might otherwise be denied them. And I, I used to say to people, look, you can either get involved yourself, be be a boot on the gr- be one of the boots on the ground, you can donate your time or your money at, to or, or or donate your time or your money to an organization that looks after your interests. And in the in the democratic process, it's simply not possible for a member of parliament or an MLA or an elected representative to hear all of their constituents all the time and to effectively represent their concerns. And in fact, many of their concerns they would be diametrically opposed to. So when you have a country in which you have governments that tend to be not popular with the majority of the people, then lobbying makes a lot of sense. It it does carry some aspects of risk associated with it when you have corporate interests driving policy. However, I think there is also opportunity with lobbying to make sure that you are getting your views heard. And I remember, just a quick little story, going to Ottawa, and I was supposed to meet with Minister Baird about some issues with uh, foreign, foreign affairs and import and export. And I had with me a downtown Ottawa lawyer who is a member of my organization. And we show, we got a phone call half an hour before the meeting because we had to tell who was coming to the meeting. And they said, well, you aren't registered as a lobbyist because in order to be a lobbyist in Canada, you have to be a registered lobbyist. You have to be, uh, you're, you're paid. It's all professional. And I said, no, I'm your worst nightmare. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an angry voter. I am not a paid lobbyist. And they said, well, this lawyer you're bringing, clearly he's he's being paid to be there. I go, no, actually, he is the same. He's a life member, and he's not charging us a nickel for his presence at this meeting. And there was a pause on the line. And they said, okay, I guess you, I guess the meeting's on. <laughs> and I, I, I thought that was, it was a very productive meeting. It was well-staffed. I found the minister well-informed. I've always... I generally found, not always, but generally found when I'm going into a meeting and I was engaged in lobbying, even if not a professional lobbyist, because we were hoping to make changes, that I found the ministers generally very well briefed on who I was, what I was there for, and what the issues were. There were a couple of times there were some some things that they were just completely wrong about, but 
nonetheless, I, I found it a helpful part of the democratic process to engage in lobbying at that level. Good. Hey, okay, Peter, you say you got a little bit left there. You want to say about lobbying or any comments? Uh, well, you know, a further problem, you know, just further to what uh, Sheldon has been saying, uh, a further problem to the lobbying system is that it tends to favor the corporations and organizations with the most money, making it hard for harder for advocacy organizations, you know, maybe like the Sheldon's been involved with, poverty groups, small businesses, unions, and others who, who also may want to impact government decision-making. You know, so th- there is that problem there. And now in, in regards to the, the revolving door, it's sort of interesting what's happened in British Columbia since the, uh, the NDP came to power. You know, that when the Liberals were in power provincially, there were all kinds of lobbyists who had connections and influence with the Liberal government. But this changed dramatically when the Liberals lost the election and the NDP took over. Uh, you know, so you, that's when EB, David Eby, who's currently running for the NDP leadership, got a mandate letter to reform uh, uh, lobbying in the, in the province. And he did some, some reforms, which uh, the, Donald Gutstein has written an article in the Tai where he talks about this, but he, but he criticizes what, uh, uh, been, what could have been done also. But one of the one of the things that um, that happens with uh, the um, uh, lobbying when the uh, NDP came to power was uh, all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of corporations and uh, other organizations that um, uh, didn't have connections with the new government. So what happened, of course, was you had a whole bunch of NDP, ex NDP, MLAs, uh, staffers, and all this. Uh, all of a sudden sort of turned themselves into lobbyists. So now you have, like what you're saying, Eric, where you have Mo Sohoda and, and others uh, representing um, oil and gas and fracking companies, Telus, Western Forest Products, <laughs> Wood Fiber LNG, the Site C Dam Project, and so on, right? You know, so that's a, that's a phenomenon that's, that's happened now. All of a sudden you have, a, you know, this big switch where you have a, a whole bunch of... Uh, New new lobbyists who uh, their their specialty is to lobby the NDP government, but for me the it still comes back to the essential thing like lobbying. Yes, uh, under the current system, it uh, you know th- that's how things work. But it's it begs the question though. Like for me, the bigger question, which is how do we renew the electoral process and develop new mechanisms that ensure that citizens have more direct impact and control over government decisions. Otherwise, we have this situation where, you know, the backroom lobbyists and, uh, you know, meet with the politicians in the back rooms and the corporate offices and so on. Uh, you know, that's where uh, a lot of the decisions and uh, a lot of the influence is, right? And uh, we need, uh, we, I, I believe we need new kinds of democratic mechanisms that can harness the uh, will of the people in a better way than uh, the, the current system is, which favors... Uh, Favor, favors elites, favors, uh, you know, the kind of the backroom sort of stuff. Okay, Peter, we're going to have to go to a breakdown and we'll get back into it. 
Save the dates. The B.C. Natural Resources Forum is returning to Prince George for an in-person event January 17th to 19th at the Civic Centre. The B.C. Natural Resources Forum offers a positive, non-partisan arena to discuss and learn firsthand the latest news, trends and opportunities linked to the resources sector in B.C. and across Canada. Registration and full details are available at bcnaturalresourcesforum.com. The 20th Anniversary B.C. Natural Resources Forum, January 17th to 19th at the Civic Center. Tourism Prince George has a new 60-second video showcasing our city's capacity to host mid- to large-size sport tournaments and events. We're Always Game was shot in Prince George on and off the fields of our sport venues, highlighting the pride, spirit, and dreams. Created by local videography and production company Six Sigma, check out the new promotional video on the Tourism Prince George YouTube site. For more information on the We're Always Game campaign, visit tourismpg.com. Create your own GIF with Christina Watts, Tuesday, December 6th from 6 to 8. Have fun creating an animated GIF to use with a wide variety of applications. It's a great way to wow your friends and family and add some personality to your messages. Registration and full details are available through the Arts North link at studio2880.com. Create your own GIF with Christina Watts, Tuesday, December 6th from 6 to 8 at Studio 2880. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their online education, offering small group information workshops facilitated to provide opportunities for live discussion. Don't miss Making Activities Dementia Inclusive, Thursday from 2 to 3.30 for caregivers and people living with dementia. To register, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. Sessions are free to attend. Making Activities Dementia Inclusive, Thursday from 2 to 3.30 through alzbc.org. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. And Peter, I'm going to let uh, Sheldon say a few words on uh, lobbying. And then I want to switch over to uh, EB's housing policy. And uh, you've got some information on that, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I have, I have a, a bit of notes on it, yeah. Okay, so we'll swing over to you as soon as Sheldon's finished here. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's about these lo- lobbying and lobbyists is it's, it's quite a business. And a lot of these former politicians and others who get into this have been doing it for a very long time. I mean, you know, we were talking about Mosahota. Mosahota hasn't been in government for decades. And he's he's certainly been active in the consulting realm, which is another a euphemism for, in some respects, for lobbyists as needed. And there are lots of people engaged in this activity, and it's it's become quite a cottage industry. Because not everybody understands how you get access to politicians and government. And I think when you have that, you, you can do it. Now, there's limits. You can't just go and become a lobbyist right away after having been in government. There's time limits you have to follow and, and all of that. So there are some checks on it, which is a good thing. Okay, that's good. Now, on this uh, uh, housing that uh, Evie's talking about, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's some of the changes are, are really going to be spectacular if they carry through with it. I'm just going to touch on a few that uh, E.B. said if he becomes premier, he'll establish a flipping tax to detour real estate speculators, legalize secondary suites in every region in B.C. and allow developers to replace a single family home with up to three units in major urban areas. Now, 
that's pretty big when you think about it. So that's that's one of them. And another one is, uh, he said these secondary suites to be made legal in every municipality in B.C. Oh, my God. And to allow home builders and major urban enters to uh, put into three units. So secondary suites to be made legal in every municipality. So there's lots of uh, places, not only do they have secondary suites, but they could have secondary suites. There's lots of empty basements in here. So I can see all sorts of ramifications in the building industry if this stuff goes through. Peter, you got some comment on that? Uh, yeah, I think this is a uh, you know this is a big deal for EB, right? You know, in, in terms of running for the leadership of the NDP and, and so on, because he's a former uh, housing minister and who actually uh, has been quite critical of, uh, of how his government has operated on the housing front over the last several years, and uh, so he's got this big proposal, like it is a four-page proposal with a whole number of uh, reforms and policies to be put forward. I think one of the things about it is that uh, distinguished from the the previous uh, housing policies of the government, uh, this is quite uh, broad and um, uh, hits in a whole number of areas and that uh, doesn't just focus on homeless, but looks at uh, middle income and uh, and other other sectors. You know, so you've mentioned some of the uh, things that they're they're doing. Um, You know, I might add another thing that they're doing is uh, that is, you know, when you're looking at these uh, older apartment buildings, for example, um, rather than uh, which often get torn down and uh, they put skyscrapers in or whatever, and uh, the tenants are kind of left uh, out in the cold. Uh, what he's talking about is um, uh, actually giving nonprofits an opportunity to purchase these rental buildings and to uh, have some kind of co-op arrangement with them. In that regard, now the the thing with this thing is uh, when you look at the four pages here, there's a, there's not a lot in terms of how much this is going to cost, and to what extent will this be followed through. Like one of the things that that's coming across, and I think you alluded a bit there, uh, Eric, in terms of the secondary suites and all this, is that uh, I think part of EB's criticism of the previous. Uh, NDP uh, policy and all this was that it well, was a bit too cooperative with the municipal level of uh, government. And what EB appears to be doing there is sort of uh, pushing through, you know, stuff and basically also telling um, municipalities that there's going to be a carrot and a stick sort of approach. Like he says that, um, uh, I'll just quote it here, municipalities' housing needs plans will be used to set minimum standards for housing delivery with municipalities exceeding targets rewarded with additional uh, amenity support and those failing to hit targets supported through provincial intervention and meet to meet growth demands so anyway this is going to be a big thing it's going to be controversial and uh, uh, I think a lot's going to rest you know like EB's sort of a legacy on on how well this goes through and if it goes through Okay, so I'm going to get uh, Sheldon in on this, but just before he does, I would say that part of the reason we're in this situation today is because of the the developers and the housing industry really lost its way. 
and they priced themselves out of the market. Now people are coming up with what they anticipate to be solutions to the problem. And so uh, I can see that, uh, and, and the other thing I want to say this is some of this stuff is vintage uh, NDP or socialist thinking. And on how to solve problems, so and it costs a lot of money and isn't going to work because yeah. I, I mean municipalities need to have the ability to determine how the people in their community want their community to look and live, and I think if you start just willy nilly allowing this sort of a basement suite cottage industry to become uh, de rigueur and normal, then you're going to have a big problem with with a whole bunch of other social issues that we're trying to already resolve. And I, I think you want to be careful of buying into a four-page proposal, which is clearly half-baked, rather than something that is much more comprehensive, well thought out, carefully designed, and deals with the concerns of the people who live in a community. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on another thing, too, that uh, you know, some of the bigger unions in British Columbia now are talking about getting into the housing industry, building houses, low-income houses. And the government, of course, is thinking about doing the same thing. And, and a, part of the rationale behind that is they don't have to buy the land. They can borrow the money cheaply, and they can get these things built. And you can buy a house a lot cheaper than you can under the present system. And, of course, if you do it that way, of course it's true. But... Uh, uh, I don't know what happens if the housing industry, the people that build the houses, go broke, if we'll still have people around to build what's left. I mean, generally, what they do is go where the big dollars is, and they leave the province. So, got a quick comment there, Peter? We've got a couple of minutes here, or maybe one minute. Uh, well, yeah, like, I think what you, what you said there, like about the, you know, the big money uh, creating this situation in many ways, like where you have very high rents and... Uh, uh, you know, anyway, all kinds of uh, things that favor, uh, you know, like what's happening a lot of, a lot now is that international corporations are buying up real estate all over the place, right? And then, uh, uh, you know, jacking up rents and, and, and so on, right? You know, so uh, there clearly has to be, uh, you know, solutions put forward to deal with the housing problem because the housing problem affects a whole range of people. You know, there, of course, is the homeless problem, which people are aware of, but uh, also, you know, just the young people coming into the market, you know, to, trying to get a new uh, get a house. There's the fixed income and elderly people, uh, uh, rental income, and, and so on. Okay, so, Peter, I guess we got to... I'm getting the uh, high sign here, so... Are we finished? Yeah. Okay. We're finished. I want to thank everybody that... that... Uh, was listening today and my guest Sheldon and Peter and no show next week because it's a federal holiday or a statutory holiday Thanksgiving Day and uh, but I will be on Friday I think doing a Reza show I'm not 100% sure on that but somebody will be here doing it so thank you very much After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart Eric Allen Kylie Lewis Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.